So where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they matter, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord you may, who made the heavens and the earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who does, nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for this time in our service where we can hear your word preached. We pray that you would give Nick the ability to communicate faithfully that which you want us to hear, that we would have ears to hear, that we would have hearts to believe, that you would grant to us faith so that we would leave transformed by the renewing of our minds. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Evergreen, again. It's good to see everyone. And it's such a privilege that we get to worship the real God. The actual living God who is active and powerful to save his people. That's not true of any other people group. It's not true of any other people who have worshipped a God of their own creation, of their own making. What we have in the scriptures is the revelation of God himself to his people. Let me turn on that light. Oh, look at that. It's pretty bright, nice. And as we're working about to read Mark chapter 4, starting at verses 21, and we're going to end at verse 34, a verse that we actually read a little bit last week. As we read this, just one point of clarification. Mark chapter 4 began with Jesus preaching to the crowds. He's preaching to a large crowd, teaching them in parables. And what we talked about last week was the purpose of those parables, why he was talking to them. But if you remember, starting in verse 10, that scene of Jesus preaching to the crowds, telling them a parable about a farmer who's scattering seed over the land. The disciples didn't really understand, so they pursued Jesus and asked for an explanation. Jesus was ready to give them an explanation. To all who seek after him, he did not hold back. 
Instead, all those who the Father had drawn to him, he kept. And what Jesus then began was an explanation of his purposes in teaching parables and also his purpose, the actual purpose of the parable itself, giving an explanation. And one thing to note is when we're verses 21 to 25, Jesus is still continuing that same discussion. And it's just found in this little phrase, and he said to them, it changes in form when every time he's about to speak about the purpose, about the uh, when he's speaking with the disciples in verse 13, that this first parable is something, an explanation that he's giving to his, the disciples around him. Before then, it goes and picks back up in verses 26 through 34, the parables to the crowd. That's why you have this parable of a farmer sowing seed, parable of a farmer again, but the, the growth, the actual, the secret growth of the seed. And then he keeps going with the parable of the farmer, talking about how big that seed grows. So just keep that in the, tucked away in the back of your mind as we read God's word. Now, let me read, starting at verse 21 of chapter 4. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? That's a lamp stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more, it will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself the first blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts to the sickle, puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word. May the meditation of our hearts be pure in your sight. 
may you drive out any sins that might be causing us not to listen to your word. May your Holy Spirit give everyone in this room eyes to see and ears to hear. For we know that the gift of salvation has to come from you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have here a continued discussion of Jesus's words concerning the word of God and how the kingdom spreads. And I'd just like to think about something for a second. What we're having in the gospels, and I know I've said this a couple times now, is that we're getting a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. We're getting to know him. We're getting to see his person and his work. And that's one of the benefits of getting to read the gospels. We get a personal look at our savior. And I want you to think about how is Jesus our savior? You know, there's a couple of different categories which the confession gives us, which are really helpful in learning how exactly does Jesus Christ, as Christ, function as our Savior? And some of the terms are a little bit more readily accessible to us than others. We just sang a lot about Jesus Christ being our priest, that Jesus Christ came and he mediates between God and man as the God-man. We, we can see that, and we see that Jesus Christ, he, when he died on the cross, he himself was the sacrifice that atoned for our sins. So the confession tells us that Jesus Christ, that he saves us, that he's our mediator in his work as a priest. But he's also our mediator in his work as our king. God's plan of salvation was not just to save isolated individuals and regenerate their hearts and forgive their individual sins. He had already been doing that in the Old Testament amongst the Jews. What was, what was promised and what was fulfilled in Jesus' coming was Jesus being a king for his people. God did not simply just forgive our sins, he makes a way of salvation, and the way of salvation that's depicted in the Gospels is the coming of the kingdom of God. And the first way you know that there's a kingdom coming is that we see the appearance of a king. Jesus Christ right now and the kingdom that he established inaugurated on the day of Pentecost, that the king, he rose to his throne he, he established the inauguration of everything that he accomplished by his death and resurrection. He established a kingdom, and he sat on God's throne, and that right now, Jesus Christ is presently reigning. He is reigning, yes, he's the king of the universe, but he's the king over his particular people in a way that's not true of the rest of the world. He's a king who has brought in a people to worship him. Yes, every day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the people sitting in this room, hopefully you are doing that voluntarily, that you are bending your knee to the Lord Jesus so that you will not one day on the day of judgment be made to bow. 
those things, I think, are more readily uh, grasped by our minds. But the confession says that Jesus Christ in his role as a mediator, that his functioning of our, being our savior function is accomplished by him being a priest, a king, but also a prophet. In the order, I mixed it up there so I wouldn't give it away. The confession says that he is our prophet, priest, and king. And what we see in our text today is what he's doing with his parables. He is, verse 33, he is giving the word. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear, hear it. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, a disclosure of who the Father is and what he's like, also gives divine revelation as he's teaching us the will of God for our salvation. And if you've memorized your shorter catechism questions, which are really helpful, you should do that at home in your spare time, that it says that Jesus Christ was a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Hence the title of this sermon, that Jesus Christ reveals God's will for our salvation. It's a salvation that is found in belonging to the kingdom of God, belonging to the people group in which Jesus Christ, he is the savior of that people. He died for the sins of that people. And how Jesus does this is he, in his continued discussion with his disciples, he shows that divine revelation doesn't just function, he's not using parables, his teaching tool, just to keep people who are superficial observers on the outside, but he gives divine revelation to his people with a specific reason, with a purpose in mind. The reason why you as a Christian have the word of God, divine revelation, is for a specific reason. And Jesus speaks to one of those reasons. Second, we'll see in verses 26 to 29, Jesus's divine revelation starting to look at what that kingdom is like. See, the disciples, being Jews, raised on the Old Testament, were looking for a kingdom. They knew salvation was coming in the form of a kingdom. But the kingdom which Jesus was bringing, the only kingdom that actually exists that can save sinners, is one that would have been quite the surprise. It was not counter to God's plan in the Old Testament. It was a fulfillment of that. But what Jesus was doing by giving divine revelation, he was bringing clarity to that plan. And he disclosed that in divine revelation and showing that God's kingdom was going to be accomplished by God's power to save. And Jesus, secondly, in verses 30 through 32, shows that God's plan, the kingdom, was going to be accomplished by small beginnings. So we have those, those are the three points that you now have as a form of an outline in your bulletin. So another new thing. And we're going to just walk through those, the divine revelation of God's purpose of why believers have the gospel, the divine revelation of God's ability to save, and the divine revelation of God's plan to start from small beginnings. Let's go into our text this morning. Verse 21, and he's speaking to his disciples, and he says to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or a bed and not a stand? 
For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus speaking with his disciples clarifies first that he's talking to his disciples about what he is doing. He's just explained the purpose of the parable, something that was hidden, that upon further explanation was made manifest. And if you're unclear as to what that word means, it's manifestation is just made visible. And think about what a light does. Why do you turn on the lights in your house? Well, it's probably because you don't want to bump into things. You want to be able to navigate your household. What's the purpose of a light? It was the same thing as in ancient days. These little lamps were small little clay instruments that had a bunch of oil in it with a wick sticking out of the end. And it was just this tiny little flame that they used in everyday life, every night, in order to navigate their house. If they were to do any reading, they had a very dim light to which to function. But they still did have artificial light that they used to navigate in the dark. And Jesus was making a very simple point to his disciples. The fact that revelation, what he was giving them, revelation revealing the truth of God's word, the divine revelation that was given to them was meant to add clarity God's revelation was given for the purpose, and for those who see the light, those who have the light of divine revelation, it's given for a purpose, and that purpose is to bring clarity. Isn't that what he just did with his explanation? And he goes on to say that if you have a lamp, wouldn't it be a a, kind of a silly thing if at that point you took a basket and put over it? What's a, ba- a basket there is the word for, it's actually a Roman term for a basket. It's about a two-gallon uh, basket for tr- carrying dry grains that would have been in people's households for bringing it home. Would you just put it over a lamp? Doesn't that defeat the whole purpose in having, turning on the lights? If you had a lamp shade that blocked out 100% of the light, wouldn't that kind of defeat the purpose? Or would you put it under your bed? There's beds were just raised a little bit off the ground, just like ours, and these were very tiny lamps that could be just slid right under. No, the purpose of a light is exactly what he says. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor anything secret except to come to light. The purpose of a light is to enlighten That's what Jesus is, the divine revelation that he's giving to his people. The purpose is to bring clarity concerning God's kingdom, how people are saved. Doesn't that give you uh, so much hope in the sense that we oftentimes, and I think that we've had some discussions in branch group that have been really helpful about this topic, that there's so many different disagreements out in the world, world about different interpretations of Bible text. Why is that? Why do people walk away from divine revelation if the purpose is to bring light? How come so many people walk away still in darkness? We oftentimes think, because obviously we're very smart people, when we're reading our Bible, it must be that the Bible's unclear. That's not the problem. 
The problem is not a lack of clarity in the word of God. The, the problem is in our own hearts. And if we're honest with ourselves, the reason why we walk away from the truth and why people come to different understandings of certain texts is often not because we're confused, but we don't want to what Jesus is saying to be true. Oftentimes I've found that with God's sovereignty. You know, part of what we're going to be talking about is God's will to save his people is the fact, based on the fact that God is the one who is able to save. God is the one who does save people. And usually when people read that in their Bibles, it's an offensive truth. And they don't want to see that. So they come to the text with some presuppositions which they want to read into the text. They say, well, Jesus could not possibly mean what he's saying here and what God is saying throughout the scripture. So it must mean something else. And yes, we are smart, but we're smart to twist the scriptures in all sorts of ways. And that's just one example. We oftentimes do that. It's not a lack of clarity of the word of God that causes confusion, but what causes confusion is ourselves. Let's continue. He says then, continuing and explaining this, he says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more it will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Think about what the disciples are receiving here. They are receiving divine revelation. And what he's told is something he's already said, which is the one who has, they have an explanation of the parable. The one who has, if they continue, if they have their faith in Christ, you know what? More will be given. There is this effect of the Christian life where when we pursue after the truth, when we pursue after divine revelation, submit to God's word, we see that there's a certain advancement that takes place in our lives, that we find ourselves being blessed as we are growing in sanctification, as we're coming to a greater understanding of God's word, and we are growing. But if we reject the word of God, if we reject divine revelation, even what we have, whatever truth that we are suppressing in unrighteousness, we are told will be taken away from us. And in verse 24, we are given a motivation to hear for this purpose to take effect. He says, with what, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more, it will be added to you. What Jesus is talking about here is that we are accountable for our level of knowledge. You know, there's different degrees of sinfulness. It can be, our sin can be aggravated by reason of how many people it affects, by being in positions of authority where, authority where it affects lots of different people. But it can also be something that can increase our culpability is our level of knowledge. The more you know, does not just give you the opportunity for advancement, but the more you know also makes you more accountable to what you know. And God will judge us harsher if we knowingly and willfully reject the Savior, Jesus Christ, a man that we've come to know. So let that be a warning to us. 
that we need to be careful to pay attention, to not just sit back and do nothing or to listen to God's word and then live no differently. But when we receive divine revelation, we need to take it seriously, take it to heart. Divine revelation is given for a purpose, to enlighten his people. And it gives us an opportunity for advancement, but it also gives us an opportunity if we neglect so great a salvation that it will lead to greater condemnation. Then, as Jesus shifts his attention and focuses on the crowd in front of him, he goes and picks back up. Mark picks back up where he left off on the parable of the sower. And he reveals that before, we saw in the parable of the sower, that the reason why rejection was so rampant was because of the sin in people's hearts. People were not responding because they didn't have responsive hearts. But it ended with the good soil producing supernatural level of fruit. If you're hearing this and you see, if you're looking out at the world and you see that, well, there's so much preaching going on, but it doesn't seem like people's lives are changed or it doesn't seem like people are converting to Christ. That can, if you see a lack of responsiveness, you might start to doubt those results that are promised. Well, what's, what's the results dependent upon, ultimately? Well, Jesus gives divine revelation to his people that God's power, he reveals God's power to save. That salvation is dependent upon God himself. Verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grow. He knows not how. What we get to see here is what Jesus shows us is that when it comes to scattering seed, does it depend upon the sower or the seed? Jesus reveals that God's kingdom is going to be successful not because of the sower, but because of the seed. What's this basically mean? Well, basically it means that when it comes to the success of the kingdom, the role of the person who's preaching, their role is to scatter. And look at the picture that it paints. It paints the picture of a farmer who's going out. He has sown his seed. He's watered it. He's done everything he can. And there's nothing else he can do except wait till harvest. The sower throws it out and he can do whatever he can. But he eventually, there's a point to which the sower can't do anymore. He can't cause the seed to grow. Our role in salvation looks a lot like this, that we preach, that we scatter, but the results are not dependent upon us. Instead, verse 28, it says, the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain. When it comes to the actual crop growing, it says there that word by itself is the word 
in Greek, automatic. That it happens automatically. Now here, automatically doesn't mean that Christian growth and that becoming a Christian is something that you don't even have to participate in in the sense of it automatically happens. You can sit back and relax and you can just do nothing and just grow. No, it's talking about the place of power that from the farmer's perspective, after he's done all the work of sowing and watering, from the farmer's perspective, the seed just does its thing. And ultimately, whatever amount of harvest you receive is not because of how good of a farmer you were, but it's because the seed's doing its thing. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. God's word has power in and of itself to change and shape the believer. And this is not to be held in contrast to the previous parable. Instead, it's adding a clarification. It's still dependent, salvation is still dependent upon the Holy Spirit shaping hearts into being receptive hearts, to being good soil. But once God has done that work and the seed is planted, the seed of God's word is planted, the Holy Spirit then not only prepared the heart, but he, he helps it to be received, and then he helps it to grow throughout all of life. Philippians 1 verse 6 says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Paul here talks in reference to preachers in general. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says he's talking to the Corinthian church who some are followers of Apollos and others are followers of Paul. And there's jealousy and tension between them which we can't relate to because we don't have any celebrity pastors or anything like that. And Paul tells them, he says, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. They're joint in the same effort. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You see, when we see that it's God, when we receive divine revelation that the success of the kingdom depends on God to produce the results and not us, it helps us to understand what our role is and what our role is not. I have not been a pastor for long, so I have to speak here not from experience, which is kind of a dangerous thing, so preface that. But it can be a hard thing for a pastor to preach week in and reach out and not see results. To see you preach in maybe a, a small church that doesn't seem to be growing in numbers, doesn't seem you, you're looking at people and it doesn't seem like from my humanly perspective, not seeing the growth of grace in people's lives. 
And what it's caused pastors to do is to be innovative, to switch from the word of God, which seems to offend people a lot, and switching to something else, maybe a form of music that all of you guys really like, and maybe a band that's really popular. Maybe we can even sing some songs that everyone already likes. You know, you might not like hymns and you might not like worship songs. So why don't we sing something like, I don't know, some ACDC song? We'll attract people that way. But see, if the pastor focused and read this parable a little bit more closely, what they would see is that the results is not the focus of the pastor. It's not my job to grow the church. I should not be investing any time and effort into church growth strategies. And we shouldn't either as a church. The growth comes from God. God draws people in. God then nurtures their faith. I will participate in any way I can. I'll preach the word. We'll draw you to the means of grace. We'll sing his praises. We'll go out into the world and scatter the seed as far and wide as we can. But ultimately, the results are not left up to us. The measure of success of Evergreen is not going to be measured by how small, medium, or large it is. Smallness is not as any close an indicator of good health in a church as large is. Neither one are really indicators of good health. The only thing that is, is faithfulness. Faithful obedience to the word of God. That's our role, to be obedient to what God commands, to present the the word of God to God's people, and also out in the world, and let God handle the results. I don't think pastors are the only ones, though, that are discouraged oftentimes. I think also we as parents can get pretty discouraged. When we raise our children in the right way, we read our Bibles with them, we pray with them, we witness to them, and yet we don't see the results that we're expecting. Isn't it such an encouragement to know that the results are based on God. God has the results in control. He has it. Your responsibility is faithfulness. Be faithful. And if you haven't been faithful, know that Jesus died for that sin too. And since the results depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ to affect it, God's plan and the Holy Spirit and his power to save sinners, whatever the results are currently, It's never been about you. It's never been about your ability to save your children, just as much as it's not about my ability to save you guys. Because if salvation is dependent upon any human being, no one would be saved. God, divine revelation here about God's plan that his power to save sinners should be an encouragement to us. And lastly, we see God's revelation. The divine revelation reveals God's plan to start small. Starting in verse 30, he compares the kingdom of God, and he's looking for, he's asking a rhetorical question. What can it compare compare the kingdom of God to? And if we read the Old Testament, we see that it's compared to massive armies coming in and storming the gates of hell and will defeat the works of darkness on a king who's riding a mighty horse, a white horse. 
And those pictures will be fulfilled one day. We read about that, about the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Revelation chapter 19, that Jesus Christ will come on a white horse, leading the army of heaven and will defeat all the works of darkness. And that's why they needed God's revelation that God's plan was to start small. Where if he's looking for a parable, something that he can use to compare the kingdom of God, and he compares it to a mustard seed. A mustard seed is about the size of a grain of sand. It's one millimeter to two millimeters in diameter. And that is the thing that people are scattering out. God's word looks pretty insignificant to the world. When you read your Bible, you're reading ink on a page. Ink on a page does not seem like it could do that much. And you know what? By itself, it couldn't. But with the power of the Holy Spirit behind it, it has and does and always will transform human lives. And just as an aside, there have been people who have said, Jesus says that the mustard seed, which is the size of a grain of sand, that he calls it the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Here's an error in your Bibles. It's not the word of God because of that. Well, that's really quite silly. Yes, there are seeds that are not just a millimeter in diameter. There are some seeds that are, I think the smallest one I could find is 0.05 millimeters in diameter. Really small seed. But Jesus is talking in hyperbole. You know, Jesus talks to average people in very average ways. If I told you I live about 15 miles away from here, and you figure out I was 15.3 miles, are you going to call me a liar? No, it's just, you're just misunderstanding. This is how we speak. And he's using, he's saying that this is the smallest seed that they use. This is the smallest seed in all the earth. And the point there is not... The, the size and it being the very smallest is just an illustration. And the illustration comes into effect when we see the size that it grows. And it's not even the largest of all plants, but it would have been the smallest seed that they would have used in agricultural situations. And it would have been the largest bush that they had in agricultural situations. And think about that. A plant goes from the size of a grain of sand into a large bush. That's a pretty dramatic thing. See, because the kingdom of God, its success was dependent upon God himself to cause its success. It doesn't matter how insignificant its beginnings were. Its eventual end was going to be huge. And Jesus is saying, there's a, you have an example of this in the natural world itself that speaks to this, that humble beginnings are not indicative of the future success. And what we see, we see this exactly being accomplished in the book of Acts. When Jesus is witnessing to this small group of disciples that meet in an upper room, and he tells them in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Acts that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. You see, people on the outside might look at Evergreen and say, well, this is a rather small group of people. 
What can they achieve? Can they really do anything? It looks pretty insignificant from the outside. But you know what the world, the world does not see? The world does not see that we are just a small twig that's a part of a larger branch of the churches of this world. And that branch fits into a large tree that has started from here in Acts chapter 1 and has grown into a giant tree over the course of history to where now there are people throughout the entire globe who profess the name of Christ. And the kingdom of God right now is established first by Jesus' own resurrection. He has begun the work of the kingdom in transforming and creating a resurrection in the hearts of his people. He's given us a new heart with new affections that cling to the word of God. And this kingdom is throughout the world. Calvin, in a helpful quote, he says, if, if, this, if the aspect of Christ's kingdom is despicable in the eyes of people for its smallness, let us learn to raise our minds to the boundless and incalculable power of God, which at once created all things out of nothing, and every day raises up things that are not in a manner which exceeds the capacity of human senses. You know, looking at God's plan, God's will for our salvation, and seeing how counterintuitive this all is, it made me, it reminded me of something that happened recently this summer. At the Southern Baptist Convention, there's a pastor named Rick Warren who was brought up on kind of charges, and people were trying to get him out of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he was brought up on charges because he was nominating, or, or I guess he was ordaining women to the office of pastor. And he had done that time and time again over the years, and people finally, that has finally caught up with him and came to people's attention. And in his last time at the Southern Baptist Convention, Warren read a long list of statistics that presumably spoke to his success over the past 42 years. His answer to ordaining women, doing something that 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us, or chapter 3 tells us is not biblical, his answer to that was, look at my results. They speak for themselves. He said that he, under, at Saddleback, under his leadership, he baptized 56,631 new believers and sent 26,869 members overseas. He also shared that he himself trained no less than 1.1 million pastors and was, of course, he noted at that point that that's, that, that number, 1.1 million pastors that he himself had trained, was more than all the seminaries put together. Now, if we ignore for a second how astronomically large those numbers were, a quick calculation which says that he would have had to baptize 3.7 new members per day, send roughly two members every day overseas, and train around 72 pastors every day by himself. But more than that is, the thing that hit me is what he's trying to use that information to marshal. What idea is he trying to tell people? He's trying to tell them that his success the numbers 
how large his church was, was indicative and self-evident of his success as a pastor. Fortunately for the Southern, I'm not, you know, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a very proud Presbyterian, but I like to compliment people where they do things right. I have no problem complimenting a Baptist because, I mean, I myself was a Baptist for the majority of my life. That same Southern Baptist Convention was opened up by a worship service led by Juan Sanchez, and he said, we cannot build the church on any other foundation. Talking about the foundation of the Word of God is specifically as it speaks to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, brothers, I appeal to you. If our, primarily, if our primary end is merely church growth, we are going to be tempted to build on other foundations. We're tempted to build our churches on the foundation of music styles and age-graded ministries or even politics or social justice or even our own personalities. Growth that comes by something other than the word of God about Jesus Christ is not long-lasting, nor is it God-glorifying. That's the point. That's what we, how we measure success as a church. We measure it based on faithfulness to the word of God. For that's why he gave us the word of God. He gave his people the word of God that he might give them a light to expose what God's will is. And God's will for our salvation is that God will accomplish the success of the kingdom. And if we shift that based on us and we move the success and think it's up to us, we're going to get off track very quickly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, everyone in this room receives the call to pay attention to what you hear because with what measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more added to you. Lord, we know that we have been given much, that unlike the crowds, what everyone in this room is receiving is an explanation of what Jesus taught. Lord, may we value that. May we cling to the word of God as our only hope of salvation because of who it reveals we don't cling primarily to a book. We don't, we don't cling to for as our hope of salvation, a mere of abstract theological teachings. What we cling to for our salvation is who the word tells us about. The Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and rose again, and that he is saving people today. And Lord, while he, his first coming was veiled, and the people did not know the Savior who had been sent to them, Lord, we see that he is the Messiah. Lord, may we take that seriously. We, may we take your word seriously. And may we, when we, may we be faithful to you first and foremost and not try to seek our success in the results. Lord, as we all know, even in my own heart, it's so easy to slip into that and be a results-based ministry when we need to be a servant-based ministry. Lord, we need you, and we pray that by your power that you would grow evergreen, not so that it can be visible before our eyes, 
but that God would do a work in us, that he would be planting the seeds of his word in the people of God right now and bring it to growth, that he would change people's hearts in this room, that their hearts would become good soil that would be receptive to the words of word of God. And I pray that we'd be faithful to scatter the word, knowing that the word itself, because of the Holy Spirit, is active to save sinners. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We are